For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. So this is going to be the first in a series of episodes of Not in the Mood where we tackle the issue of social media and our safety and whether we are putting ourselves at risk, i.e. our personal information, our data, uh, that sort of thing. But before we get into that part of it and what apps uh, kind of put us at most risk and which ones are safe and what we should have on our phones and what we shouldn't, I want to get a better understanding of our use of social media. So I found a couple of experts. In this first episode, we're going to talk to Salim Alabash. He's an associate professor in the Department of Advertising and Public Relations at Michigan State University. We're going to talk to him about his level of expertise. Uh, why did I go to him to talk to him about social media? Then we're going to talk a little bit about the, uh, the science behind what we do on social media and why. But let's start first with Salim and his background and what makes him an expert. So I've been researching social media for over a decade now, uh, looking at the impact of social media, but also the psychological effects and processes associated with using social media uh, in general, but also within the context of persuasion and advertising. Uh, so over the years, I've done numerous research to try and understand social media users and what motivates them to use social media. Uh, and how do they use it, and what are the structural and functional features of social media that are important for driving engagement with different types of content on different platforms. So let's just start with, you know, what is it about social media that gets all of us hooked? Why do we find ourselves, like I said, kind of instinctively going to our cell phone multiple times a day for no other reason than to just stroll through Facebook? So this is a really big question because there are numerous aspects of trying to explain why social media is, uh, so to speak, addictive. Why do we keep going and checking to our phones? So there are two main levels of this. The first one is uh, that social media has become an important aspect of our technology use, specifically mobile communication use. And if you look at the penetration numbers of mobile technology in the United States, it's extremely high. Uh, a lot of people, the majority, have cell phones, and we have used them and rely on them for day-to-day -day activities, from work to leisure and entertainment, uh, to doing commerce and e electronic retailing and so forth. So these devices have become a facet of our life, a major component of our lives. And if you look at the research from 30, 40, 50 years ago that tried to think about the role of technology in society at a psychological and social levels, um, a famous 
a researcher called Marshall McLuhan has identified technology as an extremely important aspect of people's lives because they become an extension not just of our bodies but also of our thought. Um, you know, he was most famous for coining the term of the medium is the message, uh, but really looked at the ways in which these devices become not just an extension of our bodies uh, in the sense that we have this physical attachment to our cell phones, but they also become an extension of our thinking, of how our brain works and how we get stimulated on a daily basis in 24 hours uh, a day. So that's one aspect of why this type of technology is extremely pervasive. Uh, the second aspect deals with how social media are designed and with what functions do they exist in our lives. So at the beginning of um, you know, the, the social media revolution, um, these platforms were meant to really connect people. If you, if you remember the way that Facebook has emerged, that it was a way to keep in touch with family and friends and to really ex exercise this socialization need that we have as human beings in a, in a mediated environment. Now, the other thing that um, has evolved over the years and social media platforms are living organisms. They evolve, they reproduce, they grow, and some of them diminish over time and, and so forth. Um, what is in, interest, interesting about uh, these platforms is that, is that by design, they are meant to elicit a state of flow. And flow is that feeling, that psychological state of really engaging you in the type of content. So when you're watching, for example, a show that you're really into it, you get into a state of flow when you're playing video games. And much like these types of media activities, the design of social media, the news feed, uh, the repetitive content, uh, the short amounts of time that you spend with content create this state of flow that it becomes really hard to disentangle and move away from them. And I'm sure that your listeners would think about a time when they opened a, um, a mobile application for like Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, and they were planning to use it for five minutes and an hour, an hour and a half later, they find themselves still using it. And that's the whole idea of this interconnected content, this easily accessible content that just runs smoothly and you move from one aspect to another. Now, the interesting feature also about social media is that we are getting small bits of information. So if you think, for example, with TikTok, TikTok is most famous for having these short videos, 15 seconds or, and now up to three minutes, right? Um, and this really excites us because it attracts our attention and we absorb that information, but then we start the cycle again with a new piece of content. So with the way that our brain works is that we automatically allocate the cognitive resources or pay attention to content that is relevant to us, that is emotionally engaging, which I'm sure you'll identify a lot of what's happening on social media as things that are relevant to us. This is how the algorithm works in trying to provide 
relevant information to you. So that's the whole aspect of attracting our attention, but it does so in short periods of time. So for example, one of the studies that we've conducted a few years ago is we brought people into our lab and we had them use their own Facebook for about five minutes. And while they were doing that, we collected their psychophysiological responses that could index some psychological uh, processes underlying their use. And what we find out is that on average, people spent about 10 seconds on a segment or a piece of content, and then they move on to the next best thing, right? And this is a very short period of time. If you compare that to the attention spam of a goldfish, which is about eight to nine seconds, this is right up there with a very short period of time for us to absorb that information. And you look at it cumulatively, you're getting a lot of information and each of it is exciting, motivationally relevant, and it feeds our brains these endorphins that we like to have to get excited, um, to get an adrenaline rush or other types of um, cognitive and affective responses that we strive to have pleasant responses. This is why content that is mainly positive or exciting um, or out of the ordinary succeeds on social media because it attracts attention and it gives us that feeling um, of positivity that we are striving for when we're using social media and media in general. Now, you talked about the algorithms that are used in social media to custom tailor content for us. Uh, you hear the phrase echo chamber used a lot when we're talking about uh, what people seek out on uh, social media. Is that a good thing? And, and, and are the algorithms directly responsible for that? Well, I think, the, you know, this is the, the million dollar or a billion dollar question is to try and understand how the algorithm actually works in providing that information. And, you know, we have to take into consideration that this algorithm is a machine learning algorithm. So it records the types of content that you were exposed to, the types of content that you were engaged with, and it starts building a profile on you and starts presenting you with similar types of information. So while there is indeed an effect of an echo chamber in terms of getting exposed to content that, we, that um, is congruent with our attitudes and opinions and whatnot, but we as humans have fed the algorithm these interests, these types of content. Now, this cannot be devoid from other influences, whether they are political or advertising related that try to infiltrate the algorithm and present information that they think is relevant to you to shape your profile for the algorithm. In terms of the impact of that, I mean, of course it's not a great thing because we have been seeing the influence of social media in terms of polarization and creating these filter bubbles and echo chambers where people are not really exposed to different truths but rather the truth that they best identify with. And it creates a void of trying to understand the world from multiple perspectives. So we keep getting fed the same type of information that confirms our attitudes, that confirm our biases, that confirm our lifestyle, without having that opportunity to actually look into other aspects of life or other groups or other opinions. Um, and, you, and it's interesting because 
you know, I'm, I'm sure this was not by design. This is just how these systems have evolved over time and how the algorithm has really shaped, you know, it was shaped by our identities and opinions and attitudes, but also it has this reciprocal relationship that it also shapes how we think about the world, considering the confines of these filter bubbles and echo chambers. Now, let's talk about engaging content that is contradictory to what you uh, believe and feel good about. And I see this all the time where people who I'm Facebook friends with will engage complete strangers in debates over all kinds of issues. Right now, it's it's COVID stuff and, and vaccines and masks and that sort of thing. But why do we find ourselves uh, just gravitating towards these confrontations with complete strangers? Well, big part of it is whenever we are using social media platforms or mobile devices, um, we are under the impression that we are completely anonymous. Even, even if in some cases we might have our real name and picture, but the fact that we do not see a person that we're talking to, we consider ourselves to be anonymous and visually unidentifiable. And that research shows elicits a process of disinhibition, mainly whenever you are talking to someone face to face, you have all these structures within your psychology and your brain to try and regulate how you present yourself, but also take into consideration the feelings and attitudes of the other person, because they're right there. You're seeing them face to face and you can automatically and in that moment see the impact of your words and the style and tone of your communication. Now, with social media and different types of technology, this level of awareness of the impact of our words and what we say and how we say them is not there. So this creates some sort of a void that allows us to express opinions in a much more unfiltered way or politically incorrect way, or in ways that are not consistent with how we would engage in an interpersonal setting when we're communicating to another person face to face. So the lack of these visual cues of how people are receiving our information gives us sort of the warranty and the push to express and go into these fights and maybe express more extreme opinions. Um, now, the problem with that is that it builds up, and the more it builds up, it creates avenues for really big negative impacts on individuals. Um, we're seeing a lot of that happening with disinformation and misinformation related to COVID and the previous elections, and you name it, but also thinking about how we are evolving as a society and how that is shaping the world that our kids are living in right now and will have to grapple with in the years to come, where there are no social structures to guide how they communicate and how they express their emotion and regulate these emotions in a way that is socially acceptable, that takes into consideration these social contracts that we've spent decades and centuries building to form these communities. Because, you know, whenever you go into any interpersonal relationships, you are motivated by a sense of belongingness. You want to be part of the group. So you go through this phase of negotiating what you can and cannot say, 
in order to belong to that group. What is happening on social media is there's no filter. The social contract is really illusory because you see that you express your opinion and almost always you'll find someone who agrees with you. So that way you'll get the affirmation that what you did was okay. And that creates a problem on the long run for the generations to come. So how do we avoid those pitfalls? Well, I think there has to be very informed conversations in varying circles about how do we deal with these issues and how do we build literacy across the ages and generations of the dangers of using social media and to try and um, explain, especially to younger kids, the differences between communicating online and communicating in the real life. Um, And also trying to regulate our use of social media in a way that is more helpful to our being rather than in a destructive way. So there's a big element of regulation. Another aspect, and we have seen some remnants of that over the past few years, and probably the peak of that has happened with the misinformation about the vaccines from some of the platforms of this opportunity and responsibility of the system designers to infuse and design these systems in a way to protect vulnerable issues and to protect vulnerable populations. So there has to be a solution that is based at the system, at the design level, but there also has to be education. Policy also has a big part of it, um, and government regulations have to take into consideration these impacts and how they could have long-term effects on our citizens. Earlier, you had talked about what function does social media serve in our lives? And there are healthy functions, i.e. communicating with your friends and family and that sort of thing. And then there are unhealthy functions. And that would be what we're talking about now, engaging people in political debate. Obviously, it's not the right arena for that. How do we as users kind of stop ourselves from, you know, transitioning from a healthy way to use social media to an unhealthy way? I think it's very difficult because a big part of it is that although social media is distinctive in the sense that you have control as a user on the type of content that you see, there's also a lot that is unknown and a lot that is sort of quote unquote forced on you by the algorithm. So again, going back to being aware of the importance of understanding how these platforms affect our lives and also structuring our use of these platforms in a way that is healthier. Taking breaks, putting the phone down at the dinner table, uh, when you go on vacation, unplugging, trying to move away. But also, more importantly, we have to train ourselves not to respond right away. A lot of the problems that we're seeing is when people get engaged in these, whether they are political discussions or discussions about the vaccine or discussions about racial issues, is that people feel the need to continually respond. And my recommendation, the same way that we recommend to students and uh, to professionals, that whenever you have a rush of emotions from a message that you're receiving, 
Do not respond right away. Give it time. Think about it. Let your brain think it through and process it in a way and then weigh your options of if and how you're going to respond. So we have to emphasize that we do not need to confront and keep being engaged in these conversations to try and win something. No one knows what we're winning with these arguments and conversations. But we have to train ourselves to move away, to take a step back, to think through our responses, and always remind ourselves that these messages that we are posting, even though that they are one of a billion or trillion on that day, but they are still found in the system. They are archived, they are stored, and they form how we present ourselves online. And oftentimes I ask is, for people who engage in this type of behavior, if they go back and review what they've written and try to imagine what it means, what it portrays about them, is this the way they want other people to view them and see them? And we haven't been doing a good job of that, of reflecting on who am I in the real world and who am I in the online world? And is there a match between them? Or do I have a pseudo identity in the online world where I can do whatever I want with no restrictions? But the real world and the online world are extremely similar now. They are so inter interconnected that it becomes hard to really disconnect the two from one another. So we have to understand that our digital identities are indeed part of our identities, regardless of where we post or who the audience is. Of course, you can never go wrong if you follow the golden rule of posting on social media, and that is don't share anything online that you're not comfortable sharing with your grandmother. That's a good way to stay out of trouble. Now, coming up on the next episode of Not in the Mood, we're going to talk to a former guest that we've had before on this very subject. Her name is Tima Kanachak. She's a professor at Syracuse University. We can now call her a friend of Not in the Mood. This will be her second appearance, and we're going to get her take on social media, what makes it so darned addictive, and what we can do to establish more healthy habits for using social media. So stick around for that. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.